You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to daily podcast for all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Aram Layton. I'm a longtime Marlins writer as well as a prospect writer and analyst. And in today's episode, we are going to talk a little bit about this series, this brief series between the Marlins and the Orioles, a two-game split. The Orioles took game one. The Marlins take game two today. And that was a very likely scenario here. We talked about it a little bit before the series started that the tougher game to win was going to be the Nidert start versus Matt Harvey, who is not the Dark Knight version of Matt Harvey, but he is still a lot better this season so far than he has been in the previous years. He has gained some velocity. His stuff looks a little bit better. He's starting to throw more strikes. He actually is the best version of himself we've seen since he was a New York Met. And honestly, whether you like Matt Harvey or not, it's been kind of cool to just see him be competitive out there again. He's never going to be what he was, but he was reaching 95 miles an hour. That breaking ball was sharp. He's going to be an average back end of the rotation starter, and that's a big win for him, and that's a big win for the Orioles. And he put together a pretty good start against the Marlins. I don't think it was as much of a problem for the Marlins. as He's been turning in starts kind of exactly like that the last few ball games that he's come out and pitched. Marlins offense did enough. The pitching just wasn't great. I want to talk about the positive first, though, which is this game two that the Marlins won today at 1 p.m. behind another dazzling start by Trevor Rogers. And I mean, I just can't say enough about this guy. We've talked time and time again about that fastball and how it is his bread and butter and how dominant of a pitch it is, but he has taken that to an entirely different level. It's the best fastball in baseball right now. Like That's not an exaggeration. Opponents are hitting 135 against it. He is striking out 18 of the 37 hitters he has faced with that fastball, a whiff rate of 42.3%. For context, Jacob deGrom's fastball has garnered a 39% whiff rate so far this season. No pitcher in baseball is getting the swings and misses that Trevor Rogers is getting on their fastball. That's the wild thing. And the other thing that's really impressive about it is that he's doing it to righties. Righties can't hit that fastball. It takes off. It also works off of the changeup so well. And it's just so impressive that he's able to throw the fastball 64% of the time to righties, and they're hitting a buck 11 against it. With lefties, he's able to go to the slider a bit more and relies on it a bit more. Doesn't really go to the changeup much at all. But the fact that he can lean on a fastball against right-handers as a southpaw and then lean on the breaking ball, which most would expect with the lefties, it's just so amazing that he has been able to develop this much. We know the velocity has gotten better and better, but the life on the fastball... Now he's commanding it better. And something that was interesting, I don't want to make too much of an assumption or overreaction from one start, but there were some comments that came out from Trevor Rogers after the ball game that I thought were really insightful and kind of allude to the value of Sandy Leone. And what he essentially said was that he felt like he didn't have to think too much on the mound about what he was going to throw because Sandy took care of that for him and he was able to just focus on pitching and not have to think too much. And it was like relaxing for him. And it makes sense that with that being said, 
Rodgers turned in an outing where his command was as good as ever. It was probably his arguably most dominant outing he's had in the major leagues, given that he goes seven innings, four hits, one walk, eight strikeouts. Normally, we see the strikeouts rack up like that. We've seen him go six innings, seven innings, maybe on occasion, but we've never really seen the eight strikeouts to one walk and only four hits. Like That combination of not letting guys get on base, especially via the free pass, that's something we haven't seen too much from him. The walks have still been an issue even this year to a degree. I guess it's not an issue if your ERA is sub two, but it is something that you would like to see improved today much better. And I'm not going to say Sandy Leone gets all of the credit for his command being better. I think he was just sharp today, but I want to watch and see how Rodgers and how some of these other young pitchers continue with a guy like Sandy Leone, because while Leone is not the most exciting catcher in the entire world, he is very experienced. He's been around since 2012. He's caught guys like Strasburg, Chris Sale, Shane Bieber, and even David Price, all some of the most talented pitchers we've seen in recent years. And of course, Price and Chris Sale are tall, electric lefties, or at least once were, that are interesting guys for Sandy Leone to be able to apply with Trevor Rogers and be able to get the most out of his arsenal. It seems like Sandy's going to be getting more playing time now, and he was also great at the plate today. Let's not leave that out, where he actually hit the ball well. A couple solid hits today, was able to get some stuff done on the base paths as well, taking the extra bag and doing all the little things. I'm not expecting him to continue to do that. And unfortunately for Jorge Alfaro, and unfortunately for the Marlins, it seems like Sandy's going to have to be playing a bit more because of Alfaro going down with another injury. It just seems like he tweaked whatever he was dealing with, and it's really a shame because it seems like Alfaro was just starting to get comfortable and just starting to get it going a little bit, and now goes down with this. I'm sure he's incredibly frustrated, but when you look at the Marlins situation now, it seems like Sandy might be the better option between him and Wallach moving forward. I mean, offensively, it's not going to be worse. Um, Chad Wallach is pretty darn bad offensively. Sandy was really, really bad offensively last year, too, hitting just 136 in 81 plate appearances. But he's had instances in the past, even going back to 2016, where he hit 310 with an 845 OPS and slugged seven home runs. But frankly, he's been pretty abysmal since then, not really hitting over the Mendoza line since 2018. With the Red Sox in 89 games at a buck 77, then the next season in 65 games at a buck 92, and then last year hit 136. So not very good offensive numbers from Sandy Leone, but it's not like Chad Wallach is much of a threat to OPS more than 600 either. And I think if you can get the most out of your pitching staff right now, that might be the move. It is interesting, though, that Sandy swung it well today. He also swung it pretty well in limited action in spring training. So you never know. I mean, if Sandy could hit 220 with what he brings behind the dish, the veteran presence and the pitch calling and just calling a game in general, something that uh, Chad Wallach is lauded for and, and great at. But I think Sandy, with his experience with the aforementioned pitchers he's worked with, would be even better in that regard. And I'd like to see an even timeshare there and just see who kind of stands out, who the pitchers are more comfortable working with. That might not be something that we can tangibly see, although some good outings would kind of make that obvious. But that could be something that is kind of felt out behind closed doors and ultimately leads to the decision there. What I liked from the lineup today, even though the Marlins only put up three runs, they didn't need to put up more than one technically because Rodgers was so good, and then Floro came in through seven pitches with a scoreless eighth, and Yimmy Garcia once again lights out with the save one inning and struck out one, nobody got on base. But what I loved about this Marlins lineup, first of all, 
How about finally Jazz Chisholm in the leadoff spot? I made my case for it uh, last week and kind of went on a little bit of a rant about how it makes no sense for Jazz not to be in the leadoff spot. And finally, it happens. And he was great today setting that tone. Two for four, a pair of hits again, one to right field, one to left field. So focused on just getting on base and making contact and battling. And I loved that. Really good at-bats from Jazz today. Yes, he didn't get the runner in from third the one time, but it was a good at-bat. He battled, and, you know, that's just going to happen. It's just baseball. But I love that your most consistent hitter, your hottest hitter as of late, and your most dynamic player in terms of speed, in terms of getting on base, being able to hit for a little bit of power, and do a little bit of everything, and he's been stealing bags with ease too, that guy's got to be in your leadoff spot, especially when you're going to be struggling to manufacture runs. Chisholm in the leadoff spot with Miggy Rowe in the two-hole with how frequently he's been getting on base, and then Aguilar, Duvall, and Dickerson. That's the best lineup right now at the top, especially because Jazz and Rojas are going to set up plenty of RBI opportunities for Aguilar, Duvall, and Dickerson. And while that trio has not quite hit for the amount of power that you'd like to see, they are the most consistent hitters in terms of driving in runs, especially Aguilar, who just does not strike out at all and has been very good situationally, came up big again today with a pair of RBI that really was the difference in the ball game and, and got the Marlins going. And then Duvall added into the party there with the third run that just kind of put this game out of reach, it felt like, because of how good Trevor Rogers was. And once you get to the eighth inning, you don't have as much worry about the Marlins bullpen. It's more so when you only get a five-inning start and you're like, okay, how are we going to get to Floro and Garcia? That's where things get a bit more scary. So when you're able to get these longer starts from your guys, that just makes things so much easier. And the bullpen doesn't get taxed today. It really was only seven pitches even from Floro as well. And Garcia only throws 10. So it's not like those guys are even going to be uh, an issue to go again in multiple games in a row after this one. They basically just threw a mini bullpen today. So Trevor Rogers pretty much saved the entire pitching staff, it basically gave him an extra day off, which was incredibly helpful. The Marlins lineup all the way through today was was pretty balanced. Chisholm had two hits at the top. You had Rojas 0 for 2, but he did walk twice. Aguilar had the big two RBI double, was 1 for 3. Duvall with an RBI single. Then Dickerson also had a hit. Brinson, Birdie, and Sandy Leone all had hits. Leone actually had two. So you had everybody get on base through this Marlins order, and every single hitter picked up a hit except for Rojas, who walked twice. That's the kind of effort you're going to have to see from this Marlins team if they're going to win ball games, and it's going to have to really be done from the guys at the top. Those guys are going to have to just get it done. You're not going to be able to leave guys on base at a high rate like they've been doing at times. You're going to have to take advantage of as many opportunities as you get because this offense does not offer a lot of power right now. And with now potentially Brian Anderson out for a little bit, we'll have to see what the deal is there. Cooper dealing with a little bit of a groin injury, I believe it is. This could be a big problem. I'd be lying if I was saying I wasn't worried about how the Marlins are going to score runs right now. It has been nice to see Brinson pick up a hit in each of his two ball games. The Marlins are going to need Brinson to be pretty decent. And that's obviously a tall order 
for what we've seen from Lewis Brinson recently. And again, Dickerson hit a ball really hard today, and he has continued to put together good at-bats, but I need Dickerson to start taking some bigger hacks. Like, he needs to start trying to do, I always say it now, it's almost ad nauseum, but like, I need Dickerson to try to do some damage, because this Marlins lineup only has so many guys that can really do damage, and he needs to be one of them, because Aguilar, he is swinging the bat pretty well. I mean, he's hitting 296. He's been one of the most consistent hitters for this team. But the power just hasn't been there. The exit velos for him are down two miles per hour, which I'm not going to sound the alarms yet. It is early and he hasn't been barreling baseballs up as much as he normally does. He's been hitting them well in the respect that he's still hitting them hard enough to get to the outfield for base hits. A lot of flares, though, a lot of hard hit ground balls, but not the barrels that we normally see. So that could be contributing to the exit velo issues, given that it's down two miles per hour from last year's figure and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that. It's never been this low for him since his rookie season. So that is a little bit concerning, but I'm not going to sound the alarms off yet just because it is so early and he could work it out and be just fine. And like I said, he's still making contact frequently. He's not striking out much at all. He's been great situationally, and he's been able to still be productive and help this team score. But if you look at his spray chart, a majority of the baseballs that like where they land, they're all singles, and it's in middle of the outfield, which is really interesting because last year, while he wasn't going crazy with home runs, he was getting some pretty easy carry on some of the balls that he was hitting out of the yard. That's not as much the case this year. We'll see how that continues moving forward. It is something to watch, but he's only 30 years old. So the idea that he could be like slowing down doesn't really seem to make sense. So I think he's going to be just fine, but we'll have to just kind of watch and monitor and see how the exit velos continue to trend for him. He did smack that ball pretty hard today, and he is as good as he's ever been right now at not striking out only 11% of the time. If he keeps that going, that would be the best figure of his career. He's also walking more than he ever has at 13%. So two really good figures, but let's see him do a little bit more damage because walks don't do you too well right now from Jesus Aguilar. You need Aguilar attacking the baseball right now because there's not that many guys that can really do that for the Marlins at the moment. I want to talk about game one of this series where the Marlins ended up with no bench players left. The game, frankly, was like a poster boy for all of those people out there that are still pro let the pitchers hit type of people and like the strategy of it because the Marlins actually it kind of backfired the moves that they made and by the end of the ball game with two outs in the ninth the Marlins had to pinch hit Pablo Lopez because they had no bench players left I'm going to talk about that in just a moment first a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Built Bar. As always, you know, I got to tell you about Built Bar. 18 delicious flavors. They are all covered in chocolate, easy to chew, and great for a keto diet. They're low in sugar, low in fat, low in carbs, high in protein. What else could you want from a protein bar? And a quick little flavor profile. Let's do peanut butter. 19 grams of protein, 180 calories. That's it. Five grams of sugar and only five net carbs. I'm a big peanut butter guy. So when it's not over 200 calories, and it doesn't have a lot of sugar and I can still get a peanut butter protein bar, that is a go-to for me. And if you go to BuiltBar.com right now and use the promo code LOCKED15, 
That's locked one five. You'll get fifteen percent off your next order. That's locked one five for fifteen percent off your next order at builtbar.com. So let's talk a little bit about that game one where the Marlins drop it seven to five, and it wasn't really a game where they ever seemed like they were in control, but it also didn't ever seem like they were totally out of it because the offense actually did put up a pretty good fight. The problem was that the Marlins were dug a pretty big hole from Nick Neidert's shaky start, only going three innings, giving up five earned runs, five hits, walking two, striking out two, and giving up a pair of home runs, contributing to those five earned runs. And for Neidert, he gets optioned after that ball game, and it's not a huge surprise. I think we saw some positives from Nick Neidert that he has the stuff. He has good enough stuff to be a back end of the rotation starter at the major league level, but the problem was that this pinpoint command that we typically see from Nick Neidert or have seen in the minor leagues and saw in spring training wasn't really there, and I really believe it was a factor of him trying to be too careful, and I get it because he does need to be very accurate and does have to be somewhat pinpoint to be successful at the major league level, but that being said, you don't want him being too careful. He needs to be able to trust his stuff to a degree, and the changeup is a plus pitch even at the major league level the fastball has ticked up a little bit more in the 92 to 94 range that's good enough to be able to attack hitters sure guys are going to run into baseballs here and there sure you're going to give up loud contact but if you're trying to be a number four number five starter at the major league level you need to be okay with that and you need to focus on throwing strikes because walks are the one thing you can't do as a guy like Nick Knighter I would rather you be attacking hitters and giving up home runs because at the end of the day you walk guys you're going to have to give in to the strike zone eventually, and that's where you're going to get burnt. 11 walks in 12 innings is not going to fly, but it wasn't like he got knocked around. 13 hits in 12 innings is not ridiculously bad. It's perfectly fine. The walks were the issue. He was getting plenty of swings and misses for a guy that doesn't have the greatest stuff in the world, and that's because of the fact that his fastball location when he was going well was good, and the changeup location when he was going well was good, and the breaking ball is usable. He is a back-end starter at the major league level. I really believe he is, but he needs to improve that command, and it was kind of exposed there against the Orioles, and it's been exposed a little bit in the past, so he was able to dance out of a lot of jams through those first two starts. The team hasn't announced a corresponding move yet, and they probably will at some point Thursday morning. They don't have to until ahead of tomorrow's 945 ball game in San Francisco, where the Marlins will be taking on the Giants for a four-game set, which I will wrap up with a little bit about that at the end of the podcast. But back to this game one where the Marlins ran out of bench players and struggled a bit out of the gate, but the bullpen overall looked pretty decent. Another good outing from Anthony Bass, and that's really good to see because, again, the Marlins really need Bass. Adam Simber put together another good outing. He's got a 2-3-5 ERA. I still don't understand Adam Simber, but I'm going to roll with it. Every time he pitches well, I'm here for it. Uh, Paul Campbell, not his best, but not terrible. Goes two innings, two hits, one earned run. So he's settling in a little bit. Need to see more. Blyer put together another good inning in a third. He's been kind of Jekyll and Hyde. We'll see how he continues. Detweiler had his first kind of touch-up so far in his Marlins career. Not too worried about it. Did give up a pair of hits in only one-third of an inning. But I really think regardless, these last few ball games, you have to be encouraged by the Marlins bullpen and the steadiness we've seen from the important guys. There's going to be times where some of the more middle relief guys, like even Zetweiler, but Paul Campbell, 
and some of those guys are going to get touched up. We don't even know if Paul Campbell's in the long-term plans for this team. I was saying a few podcasts ago that he could be the odd man out because carrying two Rule 5 guys is pretty difficult. We'll see how that ends up continuing. But for now, I'm more focused on Anthony Bass, Richard Blyer, how those guys are doing, and even Ross Detweiler, though he wasn't great last outing, has been surprisingly good to start the season. Those are the encouraging things we've seen. Floro bouncing back with a couple of good outings. And of course, Jimmy Garcia settling into the closer role. These are all really good things for this Marlins bullpen. I'm going to wrap up with those four games ahead in San Francisco for the Marlins and how it looks and the potential pitching matchups that they will have. And then also a little bit on the Marlins continuing to be tied closely to Anibal Sanchez would be an interesting reunion and what to make of that news. I think there's a negative connotation of the news and then there's kind of a neutral connotation of the news and that is what I wanted to break down a little bit as well. First, a reminder that this episode is also brought to you by betonline.ag, our most trusted online betting service here at the Locked On Network. As the NBA and NHL head towards the postseason and baseball is well underway, BetOnline is your go-to place to wager on anything, literally anything you want. They even cover awards, TV shows, reality TV. They have real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today. And if you use the promo code LOCKEDON, that's one word, LOCKEDON, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus with your initial deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. So the Marlins are reportedly just continuously being tied to Anibal Sanchez, and it makes sense, especially after the injuries to Sixto Sanchez and Eliezer Hernandez. And I had floated Anibal Sanchez as a depth signing, especially after we had Gio Gonzalez retire when he just was clearly just not able to pitch at this level anymore. I think Anibal might still be able to. While there's no way for me to really be able to confirm that unless we uh, go to a showcase, which I will not be doing, uh, there is still a good chance that he can eat innings if the Marlins really need it and is just fine in that reserve role. But the Marlins seem to not be too hellbent on adding another veteran starter after they release Gio Gonzalez. And then after now, these injuries to Sixto and Eliezer, they still right away were not too panicked on adding a veteran starter and were pretty much fine with their in-house options. But now that Neidert got his shot and still seems like he needs a bit more refinement at the alternate training site or at AAA, then it makes sense that the Marlins are somewhat interested in Anibal Sanchez. But does that also mean that the recovery or the timelines for Eliezer and for Sixto may be a bit more delayed than we expected? I'm not really sure what the answer to that would be. We are hearing more on the Eliezer front as he is already throwing a bullpen. And that could mean, I mean, that's a good thing no matter how you spin it. He's throwing a baseball. That's great to see. But that could also mean he still weighs away. We don't really know how much he's going to ramp it up, how slow they're going to take things, how hard he's throwing in that bullpen. You know, what percentage is he really trying to rear back and throw? How many pitches? It's really not a huge indicator of where he's at. We'll have to see what the details are on that on that bullpen. But he's still a little bit of a ways away before coming back. As for Sixto, we've heard essentially nothing, and he is quite obviously not throwing yet. Shoulder stuff always freaks me out, and I'm sure the Marlins are going to play it really carefully with him. So he's not going to be back for a while. Eliezer won't be back tomorrow, that's for sure. So are the Marlins 
honestly a little bit concerned about the timeline and want to have another depth piece in case whoever else their in-house option is that they're going to call up to make that start on what I would assume to be Sunday the 25th. If the Marlins don't have confidence in that guy or whoever pitches that game doesn't really look good, then you could see the Marlins maybe make more of a push to go get Anibal Sanchez. So they might be waiting. Also, his initial workout was I believe rescheduled because he had a laceration on his finger. So that also kind of threw things out of whack a little bit. But we'll see who the Marlins call up. Maybe it's Braxton Garrett and we'll get to see another start out of him. His velo was up in spring training, which was good to see. The breaking ball is good, but I'm not as high on Braxton Garrett as some of the others. He still, I think, is potentially a better option than Dan Castano long term. Right now, if I had to win a ball game, I'm probably going with Dan Castano, but he's obviously much more projectable than Castano, though I would say the projections around Braxton Garrett have tapered off a bit and you're looking at a best case scenario back end of the rotation lefty. Maybe it's an audition too. If he puts together a couple good starts in the meantime, the Marlins could use him as a trade chip, but that could also be the case if he pitches well in AAA. I think regardless, the Marlins are going to be looking at Braxton as a trade chip once their pitchers start to come back. Once Eliezer comes back, once Sixto comes back, then you can start to trade away from that extra pitching you have and not worry about it as much and put that together for a package for some Thing you want to acquire for your team potentially, which I think the Marlins should do, whether it's a bullpen arm catcher or whatever it may be. That's a good time to sell some of those quality prospects that still have some value that really you don't need as much, especially with the way your major league roster is shaping up and the rest of your system. So looking ahead, you have tomorrow, it's Dan Castano against Aaron Sanchez are the probables. That is Probably going to be advantage Giants, just as Aaron Sanchez has looked pretty good. But Dan Castano continues to just turn in quality starts despite getting like zero swings and misses and kind of defying logic in some ways because he literally strikes out nobody but still is able to sometimes turn in like six scoreless and you just don't even know how he did it. But he does get a lot of weak contact, a lot of weak five balls regardless. That is a decent enough pitching matchup. The good news is Sandy Alcantara is pitching in game two. The bad news is it's against Alex Wood, who just shut the Marlins the hell down last time he pitched. That should be a fun one to watch and should be probably a pitcher's duel, I'm assuming. Then you have Pablo Lopez versus Kevin Gossman, and then it's going to be Mystery Man versus Logan Webb. So the good news is whoever the Marlins are plugging in in that game is facing somebody that hasn't been that good for the Giants in Logan Webb. I think if you're the fish, any series you have Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez going at bare minimum you want to win two of those ball games the Marlins should be able to win three of course it's ideal that you have Trevor Rogers going in that series as well but he's actually going probably in game one against the Brewers which would possibly be against Corbin Burns would that be one hell of a pitching matchup that would be a lot of fun to watch too but again the Marlins are going to need to get a quality start out of Sandy and a quality start out of Pablo because that's when two of the better giant starters are going in Alex Wood who was great against the Marlins and Kevin Gossman who's nothing special but he has been very solid over the last couple years and has been solid so far this season another four game set coming up tomorrow very much looking forward to that series again as the Marlins return to playing the Giants and then move on to Milwaukee for a road trip that will end in Washington before coming back home and hosting the D-backs. So again, a somewhat winnable schedule ahead. The Brewers have looked really good and also Corbin Burns has been the best pitcher on the planet so far this year, but the Giants are a beatable ball club. Washington has looked terrible and Arizona is a beatable ball club as well. 
So again, another little trip in a span of games where the Marlins can continue to get on the right track and try to get on the other side of 500. And also, hopefully Don Mattingly will slow down a little bit with the double switches. The interesting thing is that Don Mattingly has done this for a while. He's done the double switches a ton going back into his days with the Dodgers. In fact, the Locked On Dodgers hosts used to call him Donnie Double Switch, I believe, which we might need to adopt if he continues to take Jazz Chisholm out of the ballgame in the fifth inning. I could go into all of that, and I was thinking about it, but you know what? You all probably agree that you don't take out your hottest hitter in the fifth inning, and especially when you're assuming that your starter was still going to be in the ballgame at that point. So you could make the argument that, yeah, you want to have a pinch hitter in. You don't want the pitcher to hit. You want to be able to have the best offensive opportunity there, and the Marlins were losing. But at that point, the offense was already showing life. You let Paul Campbell hit there, and you worry about it next time through the lineup. What's one at bat versus burning your entire bench and what ended up being a pretty close ball game, and then with two outs in the ninth, you're setting up a pitcher? I don't think the Marlins would have came back there, but still handcuffed themselves aside from the fact that they took Jazz out in the fifth inning, and that's been one of your, if it's been your hottest hitter right now, and again, he does so many things in so many different ways. At times, I think Don Mattingly overmanages. He clearly loves the double switch, and I'm always going to be a little bit at odds with many of the decisions he makes in game. I love him as a clubhouse guy. I love the way he handles the team, but the in-game management at times can be pretty questionable, as can the lineup construction, personally, in my opinion. And that's something that you just kind of got to grit and bear. And the Marlins won last year, and they were able to make it work. And clearly, he was doing something right. So we'll just see how it continues this year. But I just hope he doesn't continue to overmanage. The good news is the DH would take that double switch thing out of the equation quite a bit. So yet another reason to look forward to the potential DH in 2022. As always, thank you for listening. And I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow.